Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey, I'm Zach, and one day I'm going to make movies, but right now I'm young, dumb, and not nearly as good-looking as my co-hosts. So with the help of... I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. I'm Steven. I'm going to learn what makes a movie great by watching all the classics I've skipped over. So pop the corn and turn your cell phone to silent, because it's time for a new episode of Zach on Film. And welcome to another episode of Zach on Film. This week, you are all communists. Or is it 25 of you? No, I think it's 57. You're all 57 of our listeners are communists. We're playing, we're playing solitaire. We're going to Korea as we talk the Manchurian Candidate. 1962, starring Frank Sinatra, Lawrence Harvey, uh, Janet Leigh, and of course, uh, uh, Murder, Fletcher. She Wrote, uh, Jessica Fletcher. Um, Angela Lansbury. Angela Lansbury. Yeah. Uh, she was kind of hot. Angela Lansbury, when she was young, yeah, she's hot like mm-hmm. uh, uh, Betty Davis is hot as a young yeah. person. Yeah. It was weird looking at this and murder she wrote was hot. So, Zach, I saw you posted on Twitter this week. Yes. Uh, here, are my, here are some of my notes for <laughs> Manchurian Candidate. What yeah. the hell? Yeah. Well, so, that, was, that was in reference to the ending. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, so give, God, us, a, give us a rundown of, of uh, what the Manchurian Candidate is about. Right. So the Manchurian Candidate... It follows the story of a war general who is happened to him and his platoon are taken captive in Korea, and we come to find out that they have been brainwashed, and now brainwashed. at least one of them is a sleeper cell assassin for the communist leader parties, yeah. parties, and Party. so then we have to follow him as his initiatives come to pass and his fellow soldiers are finding out what's wrong with him and trying to stop whatever malicious plans the communists have for him. Yeah, so Lawrence Harvey plays... Um, mm-hmm. uh, what's the character's name? Uh, Eisen... Um, Shaw. Shaw. Shaw, yeah. Sergeant Shaw. Raymond Shaw. Raymond Shaw. Mm-hmm. The nicest, most wonderful, kindest <laughs> person I've ever met in my entire life. Stephen Schleicher um, is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known. So, ever. Staff Sergeant Shaw, as you say, has been brainwashed right. into doing whatever the communists want him to do, mm-hmm. including, as we find out at the end of the movie, uh, there to assassinate a presidential candidate so that the vice presidential candidate can step in and basically take over the country um, under... Really, the the control of his wife, who we find out is Shaw's mother, right? Um, right. And played by Angela Lansbury. All along the way, his uh, captain, uh, played by Frank Sinatra, is having these terrible dreams of things that he remembers from Korea when when their party, the Lost Platoon, was was uh, captured, and he wow. can't make sense of it. And for some reason, even though he keeps saying that that uh, Captain Shaw is the, the, the most wonderful, kindest person in the whole wide world. He knows that it's not true, mm-hmm. and he can't figure out why he's doing this. And then he has a revelation when one of his other uh, members of his platoon contact him. Yeah. As a question that Rodrigo will be asking here in a little while, one of his platoon members, Rodrigo. Um, and so we quickly unravel that they were captured by the Chinese. They were brainwashed in a matter of three days with some magic technique uh, to get uh, to get them to do whatever they want when the trigger words are used. So mm-hmm. in the case of Shaw, it's, why don't you play a game of solitaire? And then he'll play solitaire until he gets to the Queen of Diamonds, at which point that puts him into his state of, of being ready, of prep, so that they can uh, control him. And then he's given his orders, whatever mm-hmm. those orders may be. You will go yeah. to this location or you will go and murder your boss as a test or you will forget anything that's being said. And or why don't we go get married? Yeah. And then, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Or jump off the go down to the um, Central Park and jump in the lake, jump in the lake. Yeah. Or as we find out, um, you know, when he's turned over to his American handler, his mother 
the wife of the vice president uh, or the presidential hopeful is the one controlling him is the American. And that's kind of a big American. reveal. Yeah, it is. That's geez, that's freaky. Yeah, it's creepy on a number of levels. So tell us then, Zach, about uh, go in and tell us a little bit more about the story and some of the research that you've done and, and, and whatnot on this. Or have you done any? Uh, a little bit. Okay. Not as much as weeks pass, but uh, a main point in this story is the senator accusing other people in the Defense Department of being communists, mm-hmm. and that is a big to-do through the whole thing, mm-hmm. to try to assume his position in his political party to hopefully get the nom for vice president, right. and, which is which was very clearly a whole uh, Red Scare McCarthy. McCarthyanism <laughs> right. thing. Yeah, because that's yeah. what was going on during this time yeah. period. So this yeah. not, I mean, the book was written in like 53, I think. 59. The, the 59. movie came out in 62 mm-hmm. um, through United Artists. And so, yeah, a lot of that was on the front page. So this wouldn't have been a surprise or a shock to a lot of people right? Uh, that was going on. And McCarthy actually did have the problem that he has in the, the movie of changing the numbers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. And I, I love that bit where they're like, can we just settle on a number? Because I can't remember what the number is. And I'm like, yeah. ooh, ouchie. And it's clear that, and I forget who the actor is that uh, uh, plays him. James Gregory. Uh, is not one of the smartest people to be leading no. the country, which makes it even more sinister that Angela Lansbury, his wife, is there pulling the strings behind the scene and telling him what he needs to do, when he needs to do it, the proper cue time, yes. the exact phrases that need to happen. She is a wicked, wicked she woman. She trolls him completely. She, he's Luger from uh, Barney Miller. What else, Zach? Just the whole Red Scare tactic? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You think people can be brainwashed? Uh, are we including like, hypnotism and sure. stuff? Then yes. Rodrigo, what about this story? This is You haven't watched this in a long time. Right. No, actually, I only very recently watched this. Oh, okay. I actually, I hadn't seen this version before. I'd seen the... Well, okay, so let me diverge a little bit. Okay. So this movie came out in 62. Right. 1963, President Kennedy is, is assassinated. Right. Which is kind of the central plot of this is, can we get somebody to go and kill the president? Right. And Frank Sinatra, a three United Artists, yanked this film. And do not let anybody see it. You couldn't rent it. You couldn't go see it in a movie theater mm-hmm. until 1987. And it wasn't until wow. 1987 that they finally said, okay, let's put it out there. And it started going through some festivals. And that's when people started to realize how great this movie was uh, years later. So, mm-hmm. yeah, when you're saying that you've only watched it recently, for a lot of people, they never even got to see it when they were our age. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, I mean, Zach and I were kind of trying to find it. And, like, the movie is literally difficult to find. It's not yeah. in any Super sort of, hard. like streaming service or stuff like you have to like go out and find a physical copy of this movie mm-hmm. i don't think for any sort of um dark and illuminati-ish reason but no, are you not. sure but it could be now I this think it's because united artists went under yeah well, that too that that certainly doesn't help i mean you and you are sinatra did not necessarily keep it in in uh in print for you know i think it's just because he was busy he was Sinatra. He was doing his Sinatra. Yeah, that's, that's true. He was he was probably making a lot more money being Frank Sinatra than being in this movie. Than being, he uh, was out Captain being Marco. the chairman of the board. Yeah. So anyway, please, we diverged just for a moment there. You were going to say some fascinating story elements that you found in this piece. Yes. Uh, this movie does a, a really fantastic job of showing you what it's like to be insane or to have this like weird suggestion in your brain. Mm -hmm. All of the scenes where we jump back and forward between this like weird theater where the demonstration is taking place. And then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden we are at the like lady, like gardening ladies association hotel. I mean this, I mean, and what you're talking about for people who haven't seen this movie is you know, there's this voiceover talking about, you know, what happened. And then they talk about Captain Marco, played by Frank Sinatra, is having these troubling dreams. Mm-hmm. We go inside Sinatra's dream and he's sitting at this uh, flower party thing. Mm-hmm. All these uh, old white ladies sitting around. 
And then as the camera starts to pan, and this is all one shot. Right. The yeah, camera pans around and around and around and around and around, and you do a 360. And by the time you get back to where you started, suddenly the person who's sitting next to Frank Sinatra isn't a woman, but it's a Chinese man. Right. And then as the camera starts to pull out, we suddenly realize that the speaker who was a woman is a is the evil Chinese um, brainwasher guy. Mm-hmm. And as we pull out further, suddenly on the walls, the whole interior has been changed during the course of the shot yeah. so that now you've got the communist leader, Stalin and uh, Mao, in, in the background. And it's just... When you, and this is again within the first ten minutes of the movie. Yeah, yeah. I'm just always just constantly jaw drop. Like, oh my god, look how they just did that swap yep. right yeah. there. How brilliant is this? And then to go through the rest of the film, and this is more of a technique piece. But as you go through the film, as we're flashing back to these moments, and we're seeing it through the eyes of our three characters that are have yeah. been through the situation. We'll cut to the woman on the stage who's narrating, and we'll cut to one of the Communist Party members in the theater, and then we'll cut back to now it's the uh, the the Chinese guy on the stage mm-hmm. giving recessi- uh, reciting stuff, and it's just seamless yeah. in how that edits. Yeah, that is wonderful. And then when you throw in, and then when you put a big spin on it, which I thought was the coolest part of this whole thing, and I don't know if it's this way in the book or not. But the coolest spin is when there's another person who's having these same dreams, which confirms yes. to Frank Sinatra's character. He's a, he's a, a African American uh, soldier. His dream, everybody's black. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, it's just absolutely. like, oh that was, man, yeah. that is brilliant. No, it is. It and, really is. And he has a little bit of a Southern accent, and everybody in his dream yes. talks like they're from the South, where right. he grew up. Mm-hmm. Right, where it's That's like, amazing. yeah, it's like a comfortable environment, comfortable. like a comfortable, yeah. non-threatening environment for like any given person. Yeah, and it's uh, just in that th- that technique alone is a reason why people should watch this because it really, yeah. and we've seen this kind of replicated in a number of different ways. If you've seen, um, oh, what's that movie with uh, Donnie Darko in it where he's on the train? And he has to go back in time each time. Oh, paycheck. No, not paycheck. Speed racer. But it's kind of the same thing where you're telling the same story over and over again. But each time yeah, things are changing like details just slightly. Are changed. It's where the bombs on the train. And yeah, I know. I'm just trying to think of it. Daylight. I, I always think it's limitless because it came out at the same time, but Pavement. it's not. <laughs> so I keep wanting to say because he's only got eight minutes. And I want to say it's like. Zach's going to look it up. I'll find it. Cheese pants. The thing that really struck me about this while Zach looks this up is a lot of times when I watch a movie, I'm really, really struck by the way the characters look and talk and specifically speak. Mm -hmm. So that first of all, in that very first sequence, this movie starts in a whorehouse, right? Yeah. Which I thought was amazing. And I'm immediately like, Holy crap, 1962, this is starting in a whorehouse. And then all of a sudden we get the Russian guy who's clearly Spanish and then we have the all-American boy who's got an English accent. Source and we've code. got, you know, the Chinese yeah. character who isn't next to Chinese. And I'm uh, for like well, two minutes, my brain is listening to this. And literally, I forgot about it. Well, if you're talking I about the worrying if about you're talking this. about the bald headed communist guy, he's Cuban mm-hmm. because they, they start, you know, even even among the party, there's um, they're classing each other because at one point the, the leader up on the stage is like, oh, I know our young communist country over there. Um, is is new to this and doesn't understand what we're doing, but yeah. So they they I'm clearly about make the guy references. Who played Woe Fat on um, Hawaii Five O. Oh, the guy that was up on the main stage, that guy. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, Yen Lo. Woe Fat does not have anything oh, yeah, yeah. resembling a Chinese accent. Yeah, yeah, but they got they got me because even though the Russian guy didn't sound at all Russian, I wasn't worried about it. Right. Because and again, they they transcended mm-hmm. some. I don't want to say issues, but some some blockades in that that acting, and they dragged me screaming into the story. It was really cool. I guess I didn't realize that this was such a hard movie to get because I've got it on DVD, mm-hmm. um, and it's a wonderful film. And I snatched it up the moment I saw that it was on DVD. But Matthew, I, I guess I was surprised that um, you've not watched this movie all the way through until recently. I I have never sat down and watched this film. Now, I'm one of those people who, if I'm bored at three in the morning, I'll like turn on TCM or some crap. I know hey, I TCM is not crap. You know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> I sit and I will watch chunks of it. I have probably seen nearly all of this film because I clearly remember 
Sinatra on the train mm-hmm. with uh, the girl from Psycho. Right. Which, by the way, we need to talk about that in a couple of minutes. But I clearly remember the bits at the end, and I clearly remember the horrifying Freudian subtext scene. No, it's not. It's not the subtext. So okay, in- the horrifying Freudian text scene. Uh, but I've never sat down and watched the movie from beginning to end before. So you were surprised, Matthew, that this movie takes place or opens in a whorehouse in uh, Korea. Yeah. And um, yeah, that is kind of a shock, especially for the time period that this is coming out. Yeah. The uh, shocking moment that Matthew is talking about is as you're approaching the final act or the end of the second act, as you go into the third act where Angela Lansbury comes in to her son at the party and she's trying to exert final control and put him on his final mission is this not the reveal of her as the... Uh, no, she was revealed a little bit earlier, just a little bit earlier before that, because at this point he'd already slipped out, gotten married, and come back, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. She goes in, as a mother would, and kisses him on the forehead, kisses him on the cheeks, and then kisses him on the lips. Mm. Now, what's really awkward about the kiss on the lips is that as she goes in to kiss him on the lips, she puts her hand kind of blocking both of their mouths as they're kissing, which kind of, first of all, it's a little creepy. I mean, you know, mothers and yeah, mothers yeah. and sons kiss a lot on the lips, you know, that no big deal. In this case, it is a little creepy and it's always made me uncomfortable. And I think it's because it is the, we're hiding what's actually going on behind the hand. Right. Are they exchanging tongues? Are they doing right, something right, else right. that's a little bit more disgusting? In the book, there is actual an incestual relationship between the mother and son mm-hmm. into where yeah. she has sex with him before she sends him out on that mission. Which and that and the, makes it even creepier. And in the uh, in the movie, um, is he under mind control at that point? Fra- yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's already been basically right. told by Sinatra to just kind of forget about everything, but he's still compelled to do everything that he's that supposed she's, to do. Yeah. So she's making him do. That. Yeah. 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 Right, right, right. So John Frankenheimer. Um, Heimer or Helmer? Heimer. Uh, He was really concerned about how audiences would react to this, so they really removed a lot of that from the story Mm -hmm. and just left it up to that kiss and let audiences fill in the blanks themselves. And that's something, you know, when we talk adaptation, Zach, and we've talked about adaptation before many times on um, not this particular podcast, but our other podcast, the Major Spoilers podcast, uh, where as you adapt from one um, medium to another – you have to decide what is the most important bits and certainly keeping that little innuendo in there without going all the way, which would cause the sensor board to come down on you. Right. I think it's handled pretty well. Rodrigo. Mm-hmm. Oh, I agree. I think that, you know, it gets that point across audience. Like you, as, as an audience member, you get it, but you also can't like accuse them of it. Cause at any point they can just throw their arms. Around, like, no, no. What are you talking about? No, right. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, Hitchcock did a lot of that. In fact, in fact, um, there are a lot of references to Hitchcock movies in in this. And Frankenheimer mm-hmm. basically says, you know, back in the '60s, I would have done this. People would have said I was stealing. Today, it's called an homage. Right. So <laughs> he, he says that yes, there are many homages to uh, uh, Hitchcock movies in here, including the name of the candidate, uh, the presidential candidate uh, Benjamin Arthur. I think is his first name, but Arthur is definitely his last name. Um, he was the composer for. Um, Hitchcock's films, The Man Who Knew Too Much and uh, Foreign Correspondent. Mm -hmm. And so he used that as the presidential candidate. Um, From a storytelling uh, perspective, there's a lot of I think a lot of dull moments that happen in this piece. Oh, yeah. That are Mm -hmm. are then really punctuated by these really great moments of brilliance. Uh, like what happens if you give someone a code word and then it's accidentally let slip, which yeah. we see as a comedy routine for years after that. And maybe even years before this of I've hypnotized you. And when you hear the word uh, pluck, you're going to act like a chicken. And then suddenly uh, pluck. And when you hear pluck again, you're going to stop mm-hmm. clucking like a chicken. So, hey, guys, what happened? <laughs> yeah. So, um, Matthew, why don't you go play a game of solitaire? Um this really that line really creeps out a lot of people yeah yeah i mean weird. it really creeps out a lot of people especially when as you see it the first time sinatra does it it's a little odd yeah. but when the uh oh i forget who the uh 
uh, James Edwards, who plays uh, Alan Melvin, the the uh, the, the black yeah. uh, army person. Mm-hmm. Um, when he's in bed, and he wakes up and he's frightened and he's just sweating. And he's just trying to tell his wife, and she's like, "Well, who is this Shaw?" And then suddenly, you know, his head just snaps. And yeah. he goes into this yeah. trance-like state, and it he's just like, it, it is really creepy to just show it's how effective gross. this lock has been on people, mm-hmm. because as we reveal in the flashbacks, they're watching Shaw murder mm-hmm. their teammates, people, mm-hmm. and they yeah. can't Shoot. do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And what's really awesome is, I don't think of Frank Sinatra as a heavy-duty actor. I don't think of him as, you know, someone who does the heavy lifting. All I really know him from is, you know, maybe Ocean's Eleven and Guys and Dolls. And in both cases, he's pretty much playing Frank Sinatra. But if he, in here, he has a moment where he's trying to explain what's wrong. And he's like, I know in my mind that he's this wonderful guy. I feel it even right now. But part of me in the back of my head is just like he's repulsive. And yeah, yeah. you can see Sinatra playing out this this problem, trying, you know, fighting with himself, really fascinating, really work. He's he's at, you know, the first half of the film. He's the most interesting and animated thing happening. Oh, yeah. Shaw is just film. The um, guy who plays Shaw is just so wooden. Mm-hmm. Uh, throughout I the think, performance, I think that's Lawrence by Harvey, design. and I think it is oh, yeah. too. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, totally. yeah, I hope that's by design because no, totally. if he's like that in every film, I would like to crack him on the head. <laughs> how would it? How weird would it have been to see Lucille Ball play the Angela Lansbury character? So weird, Pretty weird. Yeah, that's who was originally cast. Nice. That well, would have been. Imagine? That would have been awesome, though. I yeah, mean, well, she would have knocked that out of the park as well because Angela Lansbury does a good job. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah I mean that she would have like and crushed a young, that. I and think and a young Lucille Ball oh, too. Yeah. You know, like yeah. we talk about these actresses who many of us remember as older. Right, Lucille Ball when she was uh, young, young. Oh yeah, very attractive. But this still would have been post "I Love Lucy." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So she would have been Desi. You know, not Desi. Ricky's wife, Lucy, in this, and that I think is probably the best reason not to have done it yeah i mean but we've, can you we've imagine seen how weird it would be to t- see her being this calculating and typecasting is always a problem because we we look at the george reeves who played uh, superman in the television series mm-hmm. he was in he never from, worked in this town again basically i mean he was in here from here to eternity and the audiences laughed every time he was on the screen because all they could see is superman they couldn't yeah. see this this military guy who's has a big part of the story and it just ruined his career by this typecast. So yeah, Lucille Ball uh, is probably not a good choice here, and I'm glad yeah. that uh, Lansbury was chosen. But again, you watch this, and then as Matthew has said, you're never going to see uh, watch Bedknobs and Broomsticks the same way again, or Murder She Wrote the same way again, or well, I've you know, long Agatha Christie. In Murder She Wrote that Jessica Fletcher is the murderer. Oh yeah, and that she's using her genius intellect to frame other people. So <laughs> that makes sense because she used to be this this you know brainwashed communist spy and now she just kills people for kicks yeah you know so, what one of the most disturbing weird sequences for me was beyond the uh, mother kissing her son in a very beyond weird, the mother way. kissing her son okay. beyond the shooting a 17 year old kid in the face yes beyond yeah which was pretty graphic again for the time period i mean we don't see yeah. the yeah. we don't see blood splatter but we see the gun go off and we see the body and the kid no we just do see blood backward. splatter we just see, see him going back, flying back. We see we said splatter all over Stalin. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's right. That's right. But there's a moment where Janet Lee is on the train with Sinatra, and mm-hmm. these moments, by the way, I cannot see anything other than Frank Sinatra and Janet Lee. Right. But he's he's smoking in public, and he starts to light a cigarette, and I'm like, oh crap, he's going to get in. No, he's not. It's not well, you know, I was going to make that same comment when we watched uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High because it's just. It was the 80s. I remember the 80s. I remember people smoking in restaurants. But seeing those smoking scenes is just so, this is this is so weird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, you, you're talking about that particular scene with yes. uh, Janet Lee and Frank Sinatra on the, the train. He is we so nervous. That. He gets so nervous about what's going on because of his internal conflict. And he thinks he's going crazy, but he's not going crazy. And he's trying to confront Shaw over this. He goes out in between cars to bring down his anxiety and Janet Lee follows, and they have one of the weirdest is so weird. so exchanges weird. that you see. I, as I watch that, I swear to you, I knew she was she was in on it. Well, I, when She's I watched it, for the communists and trying to trigger him. 
when I thought I watched it, it was like she said that line about oh you being, remember my number right my number you know where to come oh and get no me. The, yes, the, the, I remember. the first line she says about uh working the railroad oh yeah yes. yeah I said oh no she's actually a China man and they're still doing the mind thing yeah, oh sure. I was oh, like yeah, she's be. not well, even a woman and it's and it's Chinese funny because I because I thought about that I can see that. and I was like. I am just waiting, and there's reveal? no yeah. way that they'll do it. But I was the whole end of the of the thing. I was waiting for her to be like, "Oh, don't worry about it, Frank Sinatra." They pan <laughs> over to him, and then they pan back to her, and she's like that bald guy. Yeah. <laughs> that well, that would have been a v- yeah. very interesting twist. And, I was like, dude, and you were totally making out with Frank Sinatra. Interestingly, um, that's you guys have the exact same reaction that most audiences have is. She's a communist because by the end of the movie, Angela Lansbury is dead. Um, her husband is dead. The senator is dead. And uh, Shaw kills himself. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. instead of killing the president, Shaw turns the gun on his mother and his father-in-law or his uh, stepfather and then the gun on himself. And we think that that's the end. And Rodrigo asked that same question earlier is. Are, is that the end? Right. right. And many people interpret the Janet Lee Frank Sinatra scene as her activating uh, yeah. Captain Marco Sinatra's character to do something and i think there you can look at that scene out the activation and there's one more scene about yeah. when he starts be they start working out this whole mind oh trickery and they're yeah. flashing the images on the screen right and they said oh that's the same one a guy in alaska just did an hour ago yeah. so there's obviously still some big mind pulls coming in from yeah. well obvious. and remember that of the 12 people that were captured in the patrol Mm-hmm. Um, only three of them died, or two of them two died. Two of them died, right? And the rest came back. We saw the uh, Melvin character, right? Mm-hmm. But we never really saw what happened to the rest of them. No. So right. there is an implication, just like during the Red Scare, during the yeah. communist witch trials, um, that we don't know who those communists are among us. It could that. be that war hero that mm-hmm. just came back. It could be that guy who's screaming, I'm a patsy. It could be a number of different things. And so by ending it there, there could be nine other guys that are still active and could be activated, depending. Now, granted, hopefully through the course of the story, everyone knows that that platoon has been compromised and has them have them all um, wrangled up. But what about all the other platoons that have gone missing or people that mm-hmm. show up? Um, years later, there was actually a time period during the Korean War where there were three different POW camps. Uh, one was just a regular prisoner of war camp. Another one was a camp where they detained um, rabble rousers. And the third one was actually a camp where they tried to convert people over to communism and believe in that. And so it's that second camp or the third camp where they're trying to convert is where a lot of the story kind of mm. builds from. That whole sequence, though, I mean, the things that they say sound like passcodes and and reverse codes. Right. Maryland is a beautiful state. This is Delaware. Delaware. So's Ohio. Yeah. Columbus is a tremendous football town. And then she tells him his name, and he says, "Oh, really? Well, what do your friends call you? Something entirely different, right? Why would they call you that? You know, and it it's feels not a like conversation. She's using yeah, a fake name. Now, Frankenheimer said that he just lifted that dialogue right out of the book. And didn't change anything, and there's no mention of Janet Lee's character as uh, as a as a cell agent, right? But man, that is that whole sequence feels important. Yeah, and it's, it's such it's such an intense moment in the middle of this movie that it it, it uh, and there there are decisions in the film that I think were definitely you know proof that Frankenheimer was kind of flying by the seat of his pants. Uh, notably the whole he's out of focus, but we uh, like we're going to talk about yeah, that. We're going to talk yeah. about that after we come back from our, our break but, here in just a moment, because that is an important part of the film, especially from a technical standpoint for Zach. So we're going to come back to that. Yeah. But that whole sequence feels incredibly meaningful. And then she's like, I called my fiance and I told him I'm leaving him. And now we live together. Yeah. Cause she I'm doesn't like, interact oh, with anyone else. No. Ooh, I still. I, I, I think like, she's. I, like a, I think she's a Chinaman. That you pan back and it's a Chinese and person. None that's... of the things that she says make any sense. Literally, I'm. The, I'm one of the Chinese men who built the track. Uh, I love my name because it smells like brown soap and beer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is all freakish. 
And she's like, are you, are you It's Arabic? like naked lunch stuff. Yeah, she's like, are you Arabic? And he's like, no. She's like, I mean, are you married? Oh, yeah, that was so weird. So that whole Arabic thing didn't make any sense. Well, none of that, but, none of it God, makes sense. It's like, so weird. I prefer that Rose. So Why? Because it smells, that, it's a name that smells like brown soap and beer. Like, mm-hmm. none of it makes any yeah. sense. E- Eugenie seems so more fragile, but you said your name was Eugenie. Maybe I felt fragile at that moment. It's a give and take that is so her in well, control and him passively acquiescing to the weird thing she's saying and never calling her on the the lack of literal meaning in anything she says i I just took it as a as a we're left hanging at the end and the reason that why that scene is in there is because we're left hanging at the end of yes we told marco uh sinatra's character to go do all these things to prove that we had absolute control and so that no one would suspect him when we yeah. when we finally send him the, on his guy big who, mission, yeah. the guy who brought in the traitor could never be a traitor, right? Himself. Exactly. So mm. yeah, I, I saw that and I and I believe that, but I, I I think the M Night Shyamalan reveal of this would be you pan over and it's what a twist! It's two thousand and seven. Yeah, yeah, that would be the M Night Shyamalan twist. Yeah, oh. the, M. Night, <laughs> yes, the M Night Shyamalan twist because this all happens inside of an egg. <laughs> when did we take the MPAA a- start rating movies? <laughs> Oh, let me look here while Zach is giving our shout-out, and I will answer that on the flip side. Yes, we would like to shout-out to these fine people for making I this. I did the shout-out. Well, you can do the shout-out. No, out. this is, this is a Zach show, so oh. he gets to do that. Oh, it's... Oh, I'm sorry, Matthew. <laughs> but I love doing the shout-out. Sorry. It's okay. Steve that was this, 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 that is was X, this is X graduation week, so we're getting... six years on this show, and there's no show named after me. And this Johnny come lately with his new eggs and his Sia pals comes in and takes away all the <laughs> show. And wait, you find out uh, next week when we start uh, our new podcast, Rodrigo speaks. Yes, <laughs> see, it's Rodrigo, our, it's our Spanish language it. show. Rodrigo sat in a room with you and I for four years. He's not only earned that, I think he's up for sainthood. Shout out, <laughs> shout out. Okay, it's now some shout outs. Uh, Christopher Mathis, Stephen Propst, uh, Josh Payne, Alexander Diachon, Adam Robinson, William Gibson, Michael Krug, Daniel Evanson, Marco Silmo, and Stephen Gilbert. Thank you for all that you do. If you'd like to have your name butchered by Zach, all you need to do is become a regular contributor. That was actually, that was actually trying. $10 a month over at MajorSpoilers.com. We no, thank everybody who uh, donates to the cause. It uh, helps us do shows like this, helps us get these uh, lost archive prints into our hands so that we can discuss them on Zach on Film. So um, Motion Picture Association of America started in 1922 as the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America. Uh, the film rating system... Uh, came into being, oh, I want to say the one that we know now has a um, adaptation from the Hayes Code in, I want to say, the 1960s. The The Hayes Code was in place in the 1930s. 30s, yeah. And then right, so it this would became, have been in that. yeah, so when Jack Valenti became president in 66, that's when they changed to the whole GMR and X rating. Mm-hmm. And then it so wasn't. So this was in, in the lacuna kind of between the Hayes Code and the. No, this, I mean, this was, RPGM. I mean, I mean, it's given yeah. a, an approved rating. So it's yeah. not one of those. It's an approved rating. So, but I mean, it's still, I mean, geez. Speaking of, I watched that documentary we talked about last week. This Which one was not that? yet rated? That film's not oh, yeah, rated. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Okay, so, so let's talk tech. Oh, uh, this it's a documentary called This Film Has Not Yet Been Rated, and it is a documentary on um, the MPAA and how it's not really an organization that holds any power, yet they hold absolute power over the movie industry, and uh, how we don't know who any of the members of the MPAA are. And this person goes in oh, and hires private detectives, and they so go and they wonderful. find people, and... It's it's a it good wonderful. it's a good movie if people have not seen it. It's uh, on the Netflix. Talk about, yeah, documentaries. It. It's it's worth your time, Matthew. On Netflix. <laughs> if you're up at three in the morning, watch it. It's it's just fascinating because you do find out the whole history of the rating system. Mm-hmm. And really, I mean, it is a biased film, and documentaries often become very biased uh, in their opinion, or they can be. And this one is very anti MPAA. But I think from the information that's presented, it's a very important film 
because it is presenting factual information about the MPAA and mm-hmm. how it was organized and what you know gives a certain rating. I mean, if you, if anybody listens to any of the uh, Kevin Smith podcasts, he talks about the difference between one of his films getting an R. I think it was um, one of his films getting an R and, and getting a PG thirteen. Jersey Girl. Jersey Girl was yeah. the number of f bombs that are dropped in the movie. You know, if they had cut one f bomb line, they could have got a PG thirteen rating. And it's just fascinating to go in and, and mm. see that. Um, so back to technique in this film. Obviously, we've talked about the opening sequence with all the editing and how they, they cut that again so well throughout the film. Mm-hmm. But towards the end of the film or when Sinatra finally figures out what the trigger is for Shaw's character, we have this great back and forth between Shaw and Sinatra and... Sinatra is completely out of focus. Please yes. analyze that shot for us, Zach, because there's two ways that you can interpret it. Um, from the out of focus aspect, there's two ways you could, yeah, you could look at it. One way in that it was a deliberate choice by the director to show the fuzzy outlook and nature of the world through Shaw. Because this is a point of view shot. Right. Yeah. Right. So that would be one interpretation and the view that many, many people take. Right. The true story is. Is. And this is something really important when you're working with actors is they did basically two takes on this. He wasn't on his spike. And the first when I watched it, I keep going, God dang, I don't know who the focus puller was. But this guy doesn't know how to measure distance from Sinatra's nose to the lens. And so you could look at it from it's the cinematographer's problem. Or you could look at it, it's Frank Sinatra's problem because he's moving past his mark into mm-hmm. the depth of field, out of the depth of field, uh, the, the shallow part of the out of focus. And so that's why he's out of focus. They shot this um, a couple of times. They realized that, the, that this take was out of focus. Right. And they hated it. And they went back to do a reshoot or they went back to do a second take of it. And unfortunately, Sinatra's performance was not as good in yeah. the second take. And so Frankenheimer just was got so frustrated that he was he made the decision that I will sacrifice poor cinematography mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for a better performance from my actor. And it it is an intense In, sequence. Yes. It's very very heavy duty. And Sinatra is great. He is In the context, is, yes. In the context of what we see guy. though. Had this just been over the shoulder shots and had Sinatra been out of focus, totally wouldn't have worked. No. But in the context of what's going on, the shot being out of focus, Rodrigo, I think, plays well. Yeah. And that's and that's the thing is anytime that you analyze a movie for any reason, it's a reading, right? You right. there's no absolute reason why any of this happens. Even if the director or writer or whatever say, We did this to show this. In the end, you can actually take a different reading from it. And we've had a conversation about that before. What's what's the uh, there's like a formal? Oh yeah, it's the fallacy the fallacy of authorial intent. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, yeah, it basically says that no matter like as as a as a creator, you make something, but the moment that it that you put it out there, it doesn't it, matter what you meant to do. It right. doesn't matter what the creator wanted. It doesn't matter who the creator is or what they do. You can only analyze a text from what is in the text right so in this and case it works like when the because south it's park the point boys of view right? skirty mcburger balls well, excuse me yeah. what? it's like when the south park boys write skirty mcburger balls okay exactly you're a terrible and child there's there's another <laughs> example in this film of kind of that same thing um there's a sequence that's set on christmas eve where uh ben and and uh marco no ben mark ben is marco ben and uh harry Shaw. Shaw are oh, sitting yeah, there drink. drinking yeah. and I'm looking at that and I'm like, I, I, I got five bucks that says Sinatra is actually pretty lit during that sequence because <laughs> Frank, I mean, Frank is really, really playing a little bit tipsy, really good. And it's, that's really awesome. So, and the other, the other guy is, that's one of the few times that he's not wooden as hell. And right, I'm wondering if they right. didn't just let him get drunk. So here's, <laughs> here's the problem, Zach. And it's something that we see with other actors as well. Sinatra doesn't like or has been reported to not like to do a lot of takes. And usually his first take is the take that is the one that works. We see the same thing happen with Brando uh, later in his life to the point where, you know, he stumbles onto the Superman set and he's delivering his lines because they've got the 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 lines 
taped to the face of the actor that he's talking to. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the problem is, and as you start to schedule and work with your actors, you need to really figure out when do they give their best performance. If Sinatra really gives his best performance in the first take and you have this scene planned in your mind to have close-ups, your close-up better be your first take. Because in the wide shot, you can cover a lot of stuff with a wide shot that the performance isn't going to come out as much as a, as in a wide shot as it will in a close up. Maybe it takes your your talent two or three times to get it right. Uh and so maybe it's the third one that's the one that you want to do in your close up as opposed to your wide shot. Um but then the problem comes what happens if you have actors that do it on a single take and don't do good subsequently and other actors who right. do better <laughs> on their fifth or sixth run at the at the run at the shot. So that's that's the part when you're directing and working with actors that you kind of really have to finesse and and manage and see how you can come out with your with your best performance. And in this case with Frankenheimer it is the best performance is out of focus and I'm going to have to work with that. And you know it, it does bring up the thing of if if you're starting your movie and you've cast all your guys and you've got your Frank Sinatra, how many scenes are you going to have to shoot before you start to realize that that first one is the best one or in some cases, maybe the only one that will work. You know, you have that yeah. that learning curve as you go through the film. So that's you've worked with actors else. a lot, Rodrigo. I have to a certain degree, uh, but most of the actors that I worked with were like kind of happy to be there. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, like they were like looking to get stuff on the resume and stuff. I've never really done a lot of professional stuff with actors. Except on very rare occasions. So most of the time when I was working with actors, they wanted to be there and they wanted to do the lines. And if we were like, we're going to shoot this whole scene over again, they were like, okay. Mm-hmm. And as I know, you know, eventually people do get like hungry. So make sure that you cater things. Like make sure your producer's on top of that stuff. Or if you are the producer. Yes. Make, make sure, sure you're on top, on top of, of that, that stuff. Yeah. Yes. What are some other techniques, Zach, that you picked up out of this uh, movie that you wanted to talk about or share with uh, us so we can judge and evaluate your interpretation of yes. this? Uh, uh, let's go to the convention. Okay. The ending scene when uh, Shaw is up in his little sniper booth and he's getting ready to pull the trigger on what you assume is the presidential candidate and uh, uh, Marco's running up after him and they're kind of... they do the, They do a... I'm pretty sure I hear this just pretty right on. We would go uh, Shaw, mom or presidential candidate, Marco, Shaw, convention, Marco, Mm -hmm. Shaw, Marco. It just kept on building. It would start off on longer takes and they just started shortening, 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 shortening until that moment when he, Mm -hmm. boom, boom, boom. He pulls the trigger. uh, Not what you expect it is. And that was a wonderful, because the editing hadn't been too... Obvious, uh, yeah, obvious. Mm-hmm. Through the rest of the film, it's pretty straightforward, and then you get to that final uh, ending, and it's wonderfully built of all the tension leading up to that big twist. That's a that's a that's a great observation. When you want the action to move faster, you have shorter, faster mm-hmm. takes. Right, you move back and forward. All of your shots are quicker. If you have a big, long crane shot. That will like slow everything mm-hmm. down, even if it looks cool. Right. If what you want is speed, then you have to keep cutting, 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 cutting. And that draws the audience in and makes it a lot more active. I know we've talked before about um, for the lo- about editing and how for the longest time there's a convention in how you edit something. Start with a wide shot, go to your medium shot, go to your close up. And that there's basically that Hollywood rule of editing. Yeah. Right at 1960, we have two films that came out. We had um, Breathless and 400 Blows, uh, two films that started the French New Wave that showed how you can use jump cuts, how you can use music, and how you can use rhythm to really mix up uh, editing and really drive a lot of the, a lot of fascinating things. It wouldn't surprise me if the things that were coming out of the French New Wave weren't influencing Frankenheimer in mm-hmm. – how he's telling the story here. Oh, absolutely. I think yeah. a great example, like it's, it's great to see the Manchurian candidate and the great escape side by side. Yeah. Or, oh, or just with yeah, in close proximity, that. because it's like, I thought that for some reason, the Manchurian candidate came out like 10 years after the great escape, just because 
the cinematography, the camera movement, the editing, it's all so much more active. Yes. And just like so much more engaging. But the Majority Candidate came out before The Great Escape. It came yeah, out yeah. the year before, yeah, I yeah. believe. Yeah. So it's it's amazing to see what like not like what putting a little thought and 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 trying to express your themes through um cinematography and editing can do for a film yeah i remember because i was watching it and i didn't quite remember when the great escape came out and like this in the middle of film i like looked it up really quick when it was coming out because they're so different in Mm -hmm. the cinematography Mm -hmm. uh a lot more close-ups uh moving the camera especially that that we already talked about that scene with the brainwash is just fantastic i watched it like six times and I guess one other bit of editing that was really well done was closing out the second act, going into third. I think that's when it was. Is when uh, the mom go just goes into the drawer and pulls out the deck of cards, mm-hmm. and that's all you see. And it's like you automatically know, oh, she's right. snapped him into this mission, right? Like that was that was nice. Mm-hmm. This is um. You know, you're you're comparing the two films, obviously different directors. Right. No, um, no. But yeah, the time period, one is still following a very Hollywood style system, mm-hmm. big star system. And then you've got United Artists, which is, yeah, I don't want to say it's your your true independent film, but it like is your, it is your it's pretty close. independent searchlight kind of thing. No, it, no it's, 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 like it's Charlie Chaplin being like, screw all y'all. <laughs> We're making our own movies. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's more along the lines of like maybe the Weinsteins. Yeah. Okay. What they do. Yeah. It's kind of like what United Artists was at, at that time. Now United Artists. Proto Miramax. Yeah. Proto Miramax. I would say sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely does a lot of things that are different and ask the audience to be smart. Yeah. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't play, oh, yeah, it doesn't absolutely. play dumb to the audience where you have to, I mean, it spells everything out for the audience, but, but it's, it's not its not dumbing down the topic and it's not afraid, right. with the exception of the incest scene, it's not afraid to, everything is is open. I mean, they're naming people as communists and painting them as right. bad people right. and right. nobody is, nobody is perfect. Right. And it, but it's, so it's, it's handling difficult subjects, but it's also through the entire movie doing it in a very organic and natural way like mm-hmm. the camera moves along with the characters and when it's a dream there's like this dream quality to it yeah without like filters or anything mm-hmm. i mean it's mm-hmm. it's it really is just like camera movement placement and all that stuff and it just creates like it just enhances every scene so much more to have you know it's like this is a difficult moment so we're gonna shoot it you know, from below or from above or from whatever's happening. You know, this character sitting down, this character standing up, the way that everything's arranged in the screen, like it always draws your eye towards important and sometimes draws your eye away from what's important so that later on it can hit you over the head with it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. And there's there's a kind of restraint here that part of it, I think, is the fact that it's, you know, it is the era and they had to utilize the restraint specifically in the sequences where he's assassinating people. Uh, when he shoots John McIver, do you know me? I carry American Express. <laughs> I wanted to shoot him too. But when he shoots him in the kitchen, that sequence plays really dreamy and weird mm-hmm. because he's standing there and he's got his gun and his gun is forefront in the frame and they're shooting kind of up and across at McIver. The gun is right there and that's the only thing I can look at. And the conversation goes on for a few seconds before he looks down and realizes there's a gun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We see it because of where that camera is placed. But the whole thing is really, really creepy and really kind of distant. But the actual, you know, the actual assassinations, the actual shots are kind of played wider than you'd see today. And there wasn't, you know, you didn't have the big blood squib that I'd expect from maybe a Born Identity film or something. And, you know, somebody, several people take bullets right in the head during mm-hmm. this film. Mm-hmm. And you don't see the huge, you know, Francis Ford Coppola. Kind yeah, of that, thing you know, that really doesn't come until much later where you see a lot of that when you're late 60s, early 70s. When you see yeah. that. So just in a matter of five years, the mood of the country changes and the mood of what audience expects changes. And, you know, maybe the event that happened in 63 is that trigger for, lo- for no pun intended 
for audiences to be more awake and more aware and more able to handle uh, more serious uh, imagery like right. that. Or now, even more able to, to you know, consider the, the possibility that these things even happen at all. Right. Now, this, uh, you know, we've been talking about this film. Um, like I said, it was shelved until 87. But it is, there are so many good parts in it that, you know, again, the National Archive has check this for preservation that we need to preserve it for these reasons. Mm-hmm. It's also not a, gr- I mean, it's not an awesome film. There are part parts of this movie where it seems to drag oh, for a yes. long time. Oh, the Josie flashback goes on yeah, yeah. and on. Yeah. And, and like, on. it's important, but I'm like, they could have caught that into yeah. thirds. Like they could. And you know, the whole sequence on the train, Part of the reason that it feels so meaningful is because so much time is spent with Frank Sinatra on the train, lighting a cigarette and having this completely nonsensical thing. And I'm like, why are we spending so much time? Why yeah. are we and, so and, and focused? We never, yeah, and we never explicitly see the result of it. Right. Yeah, like, there's, so there's no one of two things. Yeah. Either it's like it's basically an Easter egg and you're like, oh, I bet he is also mm-hmm. a Manchurian mm-hmm. candidate, which is totally a term that is used in this movie. Yes. Run, um, <laughs> run, run, die hard. Run, um, die hard, run. But it's um, Inspector or, who is the Manchurian candidate, by the way. Or um, that. Or it's meaningless or it's pointless. Mm-hmm. Like, it's yeah. just mm-hmm. like two drunk people talking. It's, it's yeah. in there. And this film, I, when I sat down, I'm like, geez, this is two hours and ten minutes. Yeah. I could not believe that this movie was two hours and ten minutes knowing what I expect in it. And I'm like, okay, I'm thinking of how this breaks down. I'm thinking, well, the remake. I'm like in 90 minutes, 92. But, at, you know, at two hours, six, two hours, ten you could probably edit another, mm, I'm going to say 15 minutes easy, maybe even half an hour if you wanted to really start. You could probably, you could probably trim out a, a good 20, 30 minutes out of this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but you have, to, but you have to leave in you have to leave in the first uh, karate fight scene in an American film. Yeah. <laughs> good Lord. Okay, can uh, we talk so about that? It was the first karate scene in an American film. Amazing. Uh, Sinatra that, break, broke his hand in that really? scene where he went through the table. And, <laughs> yeah, because uh, he point, does. Yeah. And I yeah, was like, I remember watching that and I was like, that's awesome. Like, because I because I remember thinking like, that's awesome that like he punches through a table. Right. Like, I wonder how they rigged that. And apparently he they, did. they, they did. didn't. <laughs> he broke his hand. And so here's what's really fascinating as a side story to that is um, he eventually had to go in for surgery to have the pain. To, yeah. to stop the pain in, in the hand from the injury. Uh, he was supposed to appear in another film called Dirty Harry, but couldn't. As, as Dirty Harry? As Dirty Harry, but couldn't because of the surgery and the pain that he was having in his hand. Mm. So that yeah. went to Clint Eastwood. So, And Henry Silva, the man that he is fighting, apparently there was an interview and they talked about that. And he's like, there were no stunt doubles in that sequence. Yeah, and yeah. the implication was, I got my head caved in by Frank Sinatra and <laughs> yeah. it was kind of worth it. Yeah, but um, something else about that, and I, I I want to point this out right now. Let me. Okay, go ahead. It is hard in 2013 to accept Henry Silva playing a Korean man with the Pigeon 32nd Regiment accent, and not look at that and go, "Oh, God, guys, come on!" No, there, I it's. Mean, I mean, there's a lot of that going on, and. I, I understand that we are looking at a period in yeah. United States history where those guys have to be like actively demonized. Right. Yeah. And like you're not actually going to find a lot of Korean actors or Chinese yeah. actors who want to play an evil Chinese person. Yeah. Right. You know, in a movie necessarily. I mean, you might find some, but especially back then you wouldn't. Then again, it's not like that has changed that much yeah, yeah. i was actually i was because of something else that i'm working on i looked up the information for dances with wolves yes um uh, and it's like interestingly rodrigo mm-hmm. the scene shot at fort hayes not shot at fort hayes I- imagine that um <laughs> i wondered about that's that's probably that's probably because i didn't want like tourists in like uh <laughs> cargo shorts walking <laughs> through it but um 
it's like you look at it and it's like, all right, so Kevin Costner's character talks to the chief, played by you know Harry McCutcheon, is <laughs> like, and then he talks to the head of the Lakotas, played by like. Dion Jackson or some whatever you know it's like <laughs> none of these guys are actually Native Americans. Yeah. 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 All right, Zach. Oh, I, I, let me say this about the karate scene. I, I couldn't really watch it and get into it as an action sequence because all I could think of was Peter Sellers fighting his butler. <laughs> right. Yes. There's yeah. a lot of there's kind of that feel to it. Yeah. It's and pretty. That is pretty... a Pink Panther reference, Zach, which maybe we will have on the list at some point. Okay. So now. Final question. Yes. What did you get out of this, and how are you going to apply it to... Actually, the first of two questions. What did you get out of this, and how are you going to apply it to your future work? Um, part one. Right, part one. Uh, I liked a lot of the cinematography, and you, you can definitely learn some bits about that, uh, especially uh, deep focus. Mm-hmm. I thought it was used really extremely well, especially in that scene where he kills the senator and his... Uh, uh, recent wife mm-hmm. when you can fit uh, two important things clearly in focus in the same frame. It's wonderful. Okay. Um, uh, like I said, editing earlier with the build up, which which I think was worked even well because even better than normal because of how somewhat slow the rest of the movie was to get punched with that at the end really made that scene even more dramatic. That's what I learned. Uh, I was looking for the actual type of lens that's used in that um, because it's, it's a green one. It's a um, you see it at the beginning where you see the um, the Korean, Korean scout up right. close, and then you see Sinatra's characters right. coming in. He uses it. Really, the only way that you can do that effectively is you use a split lens, mm-hmm. which actually actually lets you focus at two different so, points at once. Oh, really? And if you look carefully, you right. can see right where the lens splits in that huh. scene. Because there's about eh, a little fraction of the background that goes out of focus before Sinatra's group gets back into focus. Mm. So go check it. I think it's called a split lens. Um, go check those out because they're really okay. kind of cool and when you can do those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, I, I really like the deep focus look. Yeah. Second question. Yes. Did your girlfriend watch the film with you? No, I tried to get her to come over when I watched it, but she was like, I want to study for finals. Hey, she was talking like that. She's a lovely voice. <laughs> 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 oh, it starts. <laughs> she's listening to the show. No, she's not. She doesn't. She, no, doesn't. she doesn't listen at all. She doesn't? No. Are you going to go hang out with those nerds again? Zach's girlfriend yes, is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful <laughs> human being I've ever known in my life. <laughs> all right, Zach, you're going to have to get her to watch some of these films. Surely, with now that school is wrapping up. For the she'll have to that. find she'll a better time. excuse. <laughs> yeah, she'll have to find more excuses. Matthew, pass or fail? For Zach? Yes. <laughs> no, you. Are we just going pass, fail? Oh, you do whatever you want. I'm going to give Zach a solid B+. Plus. I think I'll that he he hit all of the major points, and I think he got, you know, the part of it. The 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 thing that always blows your mind at the end, and I'm, I like to do this because this is kind of mm-hmm. my shtick, Zach. You know Angela Lansbury as mom? And uh, Mark, uh, what's his name? Brick McLarge, huge. Blast Hard Cheese playing uh, the main character. They are three years apart. She's literally yeah, yeah. three years older than him at the time of the filming. Oh, wow. So that whole thing where they say a woman of a certain age can't get a job in Hollywood, this ain't new. That's all I'm saying. Uh, but that eh, definitely a solid B+. I think that... You know, he hit on the, the editing differences and the, the Google goggles, and he even brought up some stuff that I didn't catch. And I I loved this. I sat down and I watched this film and just, oh, wow, I'm watching this movie. I'm going to go lock the door so no one walks into the house because I'm watching this movie with my headset on. I don't want people walking in. Just, that's how engaging this one was. Rodrigo? I think Zach did well. Um, he was clearly paying attention, approaching it with a critical eye. I'll definitely pass him, um, largely to draw attention away from the fact that this is also the very first time I've seen this movie. Wow, very good, Rodrigo. You also mm-hmm. get a pass this week. Then. Hooray! Yay, Rodrigo. Uh, this is the first pass I've ever gotten in a film class. <laughs> <laughs> Zach, I'm going to give you a C. I think I'll you did some it. average work on the, on, on this one. Um, <sighs> Dang it. No, I mean... No, it's okay. 
Zach even admitted before we recorded, I didn't do as much research as I had. Yeah, no, I so, you know, that knocked him down a little bit. But uh, right. shouldn't, shouldn't admit to things like that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so don't give Steven now, that, now that school's over, a couple of things, Zach. Oh, yeah. when are you going to go watch Star Trek? Isn't that this weekend? Or is that next weekend? It comes out Thursday. Are you going to go see it? Probably. I'm wanting to. Before graduation or after graduation? Oh, man. No, because your family's in town. Yeah, they don't come in until Friday. So if I can watch it on Thursday or midnight on Wednesday, I probably will. Okay, so go watch a modern action film. And then, and then, after after your family leaves, I want you to sit down and watch a little movie called The Sting. And have your girlfriend watch this one with you. (laughs) Okay. It's got two hunky guys in it. Oh, that should Robert, uh, Paul Newman, and uh, Robert Redford. I like Robert yeah. Redford. So, it's also got Robert Shaw in and Robert Shaw awesome. in it as awesomest. well. Yeah, yeah. Shaw's pretty hot in his own he, way. Yes, he is. And that big handlebar mustache. Oh, and it's got uh, MacGyver's boss in it as well, Dana Elkar. Dana Elkar, yeah. So. yeah. And um, that one guy. Yeah. Oh, it's got uh, my favorite Martian in it. Yeah. It's got um, Ray Judge Bone. I call him. Uh, it's got, uh, 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 there's lots of, there's a lot of actors in this one. Yeah. We'll get around to it. We'll yeah. just play with, like, like I did throughout this whole movie. We'll just play, Hey, it's that guy. Oh yeah. 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 So go this watch it. The Sting. All right. So that's going to wrap it up here on Zach on film for this week. Thank you for listening. Head on over to majorspoilers.com. You can give your own thoughts and ideas on the Manchurian candidate in the comments of the podcast posting. And while you're there, make sure to click on the Amazon link on the front page so you can go to Amazon and buy your own copy of the uh, elusive Manchurian Candidate uh, DVD or Blu-ray. A little bit of that money will come back to us, but will not charge you any extra. So that's going to wrap it up for here. Next week, we talk The Sting as we talk more movies on Zach on Film.